Tonight's reading is um, from Joel chapter 2, and we're reading verses 18 through to 27, and that's on page 914 of the Bibles. That's page 914, Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the parched for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Thanks, Vic. Joel chapter 2, verse 17 reads this. Let them say... Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Last month, Greece experienced their worst heat wave in decades. Temperatures hit 46 degrees and wildfires broke out all over the place, as we know. One of the worst affected areas was the island of Rhodes, and if we click on a couple of sides, we can see the impact there. The blaze there broke out on July 18th, and it was fanned by strong winds. Um, The flames spread to the eastern and southern coasts, an area with many beach resorts. Many buildings, hotels were uh, burned to the ground. 15% of the island has been scorched. And if we look at Greece more generally, Um, At least five people um, lost their lives and nearly 50,000 hectares, that's uh, 123,000 acres, um, were destroyed. Now we hear of natural disasters so frequently that it's easier to kind of keep them at arm's length. 
And we become numb to such events in, as a coping mechanism, really, because otherwise we'd be mourning every day. There are so many fires, floods, and earthquakes in this world, and if we ever do let our guard down, if we ever do let the brokenness of God's creation hit us, then a natural reaction is despair. Um, some people might even ask the very question from um, Joel chapter 2, verse 17 that I read. Where is their God? Where is their God in all this? Imagine a local farmer um, in this situation looking out over their devastated lands, their devastated home. And you get a small idea of what the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah might have felt as they looked out uh, after the events of Joel chapter 1. Just in case you've missed the last two weeks, here's the story so far, very quickly. In chapter one, we read about a really terrible swarm of locusts that devastated Judah and Jerusalem. Wave after wave came through until there was absolutely nothing left. In their case, 100% of the land was ravaged. There was nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nothing to feed their animals, and nothing to offer at the temple. So God called the people together to mourn this horrendous natural disaster. But even as they mourned the locust swarm, they were also told and warned of a coming day of greater destruction. Last week, we read about the coming day of the Lord. It will be a terrible day of darkness and destruction that is unavoidable. So the people were called to gather again to return to the Lord their God. And we read these words, who knows, he may turn and relent. And um, this week we find the answer to that question. In our verses this evening, we discover how the Lord responds to the mourning and returning of his people. Um, you might have noticed that so far the, the mourning and the returning has only been commanded. We haven't actually read about them happening. We haven't read that they obeyed what God said. However, we're supposed to fill in the gap. We're supposed to assume that they did exactly what they were told. They did mourn together. They did return together. Now, our reading can be split into three parts. In verses 18 to 20, we find the reply where the Lord says, I will, I will, I will. Um, then in verses 21 to 24, the prophet Joel speaks, and uh, he commands a response. And then finally, in verses 25 to 27, the Lord himself speaks again, describing the result of his action. You will, you will, you will. Um, so that's how we're splitting it up. We're looking at the reply, the response, and the result. Um, and just so you know, we're going to stay in the world of Joel 2 for most of it, and then at the end, we're going to come into the world of Banstead. Um, so don't fall asleep just yet. The reply. Verse 18 describes how the Lord himself turns in response to the people's turning back to him. Until now, we've seen him um, commanding judgment on his people, but as his people turns, so he turns Verse 18 says, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. 
Both his jealousy and his pity are expressions of God's commitment to what is his. He longs for what is his, as a loving husband longs for his wife. But notice, if you're reading carefully, that this is not just towards his people. The Lord is also longing for his land, the ground, the very earth beneath their feet. Now, you might ask the reasonable question at this point. Is the Lord relenting from the locust invasion of chapter 1, or is the Lord turning from the final judgment of chapter 2? It's a good question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, I'm afraid there isn't a straightforward answer. Biblical prophecy often has a double meaning. There's often an immediate fulfillment and a later one. Um, The prophets can talk about both at the same time. But broadly speaking, these verses here about how the Lord turns from the events of chapter 1, how the Lord relents from the calamity of the locust swarm. Uh, as the rest of Joel continues, the focus will be more and more on the future stuff. But, but now, it's, it's mostly about reversing what happened in chapter 1. Uh, in his direct speech, there are three expressions of God's pity and jealousy towards his land and people. We might summarize it like this. Uh, it's up on the screen. I will renew, I will restore, I will repel. I will renew the land. The Lord's first promise is that uh, even now, even now he's sending grain, new wine, and olive oil. That land had been devastated by the locust swarm, but, and the harvest had failed, but now it's being renewed. I will renew the land. I will restore your reputation. The Lord's second promise is that they'll never again be an object of scorn to the nations. And that promise also gets repeated later in 26 and 27. Never again will my people be shamed. Never again will my people be shamed. It's a response to that prayer that I read at the start. Do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among your nations. Now the Lord is restoring their reputation. And I will repel the invaders. The Lord's third promise in verse 20 is to drive the northern horde far from them. Um, Now, as southerners, we have stereotypical ideas about uh, what northerners are like. Um, As we pass the sign on the M6, the north, uh, we uh, know that we've entered a strange land of chips with gravy and uh, friendliness to strangers. Um, But in Joel's time, the north had a rather different mythological um, significance as a place of danger. Um, It was where a lot of Israel's enemies came from, and it sounds like the locusts came from that place too. Um, But God promises that the swarm will be driven far away to destruction. The Lord promises, I will renew, I will restore, I will repel. And this confirms what we noticed about his character last week. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. That's the reply. Now let's click on to the response. Uh, In verses 21 to 24, the response commanded is, Be glad and rejoice. The Lord has spoken his reply. And now it's the prophet Joel who speaks. 
Twice he responds to God's renewing, restoring, and repelling with these words. Surely he has done great things. Surely he has done great things. Um, Seeing that reversal of fortunes, Joel cannot help but praise. And he calls everyone else to respond as well. Both God's creation and his people are called to be glad and rejoice. Um, First in verses 21 to 22, God's creation is called to rejoice. Um, Let's read that. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. The land or the the ground of Judah can rejoice because now the Lord has reversed the curse. Um, It's really interesting to see how these verses undo what has been done in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, the pastures of the wilderness were devoured by fire. Now they are green. In chapter 1, verse 20, the wild animals cried out due to lack of water, but now they need not fear. In chapter 1, verse 12, the trees withered, but now they bear fruit. There were no grapes, no figs in chapter 1, and yet now there is a rich yield. And so creation itself should be glad and rejoice. I guess that might seem a little bit odd to us, the idea of creation rejoicing, but it's quite a common idea in the Bible, not that it implies that it's conscious or anything like that. Um, Even this morning, we heard um, Jesus saying that uh, if I tell my disciples to turn down the volume of the worship music, then even the stones are going to start praising me. Um, And elsewhere in the Bible, we hear about trees of the field clapping their hands and things like that. Creation rejoices. And secondly, um, verses 23 to 24, God's people are called to rejoice. Let's read that. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with new wine and oil. And notice that while it is the people this time that are called to rejoice, the focus is is still on what God is doing with the natural world. Rain, grain, wine, and olive oil. I think after yesterday, we've got some idea of what abundant rain looks like. Um, For us, that means a disappointing summer weekend or a slightly interrupted round of golf. Um, But for them, in a time of drought and famine, it meant life. Last week, we were placing ourselves on the walls of Jerusalem, weren't we? We were looking out over the valleys and up into the mountains. We were um, trembling as we saw darkness dawn and uh, the army of the Lord spreading towards us. But this time we stand on those very same walls and again, we see a bit of darkness, but it's the darkness of a, a rain cloud and the rain clouds come towards us. And you know that feeling where You can see uh, those rain clouds driven by the wind and the kind of hazy mist that you know is rain coming closer and closer towards you. Not bringing judgment, but bringing life-giving water. For Jerusalem, that was a joy to behold. And as that rain cloud broke over it, you can imagine the kids running out from their houses into the streets to dance in the puddles. The return of the rain was... The cause of the grain, the wine, and the olive oil coming back too. 
And as we learned in chapter one, all those things were necessary for worship at the temple. Those clouds broke and worship at the temple resumed. The land and the people have been through a time of deep mourning and grief. In this world, such times are inevitable. God's people know that mourning is real. God's people know that mourning is painful, but it is never permanent. And that's because God is faithful. That's what it says in the verse. He has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. We, you and I, we might be unfaithful, but we can never say that of God. He will always remain faithful. So we can be certain that even in mourning, rejoicing is just around the corner. Think again of the local farmer on the island of Rhodes. Right now he's mourning over the scorched earth that used to be so vibrant. But God's faithfulness means that that place will not remain that way. The skies will break, seeds will sprout, what is now blackened earth will soon be green once more. What is now barren will soon bear fruit. Joy will return to the land and the farmer alike. And now our final points, the results. We've heard the Lord's reply, I will renew, I will restore, I will repel. We've heard the response, rejoice, be glad. Now, verses 25 to 27, it's the Lord speaking again. This is the result. You will eat you will praise, you will know. The paragraph actually opens with the Lord reiterating the promise from earlier in different words. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. We've heard that promise of restoration already. But God also now clarifies what has been unsaid before. Yes, the locust swarm was a natural disaster, but it was sent by the Lord. This shouldn't be too much of a surprise to us. After all, in other parts of Israel's history, the Lord uses other nations. Um, he sends other nations to uh, judge the people after their sin. Uh, this time, he just happens to send locusts instead. However, he has relented from this calamity, and this will be the result. You will eat, you will praise, you will know. You will eat, verse 26, because once again there will be plenty, and you will be full. The famine will be over. You will praise the name of the Lord your God. There has actually been no praise so far in Joel. I've told you already that the lack of grain, the lack of wine and olive oil meant that worship in the temple had to be put on hold. But once again, they will be worshippers in the presence of their God in response to his rescue. And you will know the Lord. You will know the Lord. This is the greatest result of God's turning in pity towards his land and his people. His greatest blessing is himself. Verse 27 highlights three parts to this knowledge of God. One, knowing his presence among his people. How wonderful that our, our God doesn't just send blessings from afar, chucking them at us from a distance just in case he's contaminated. 
His desire is to be with us. His desire is uh, for us to have an awareness that he is here as well. Knowing his presence among his people. Um, Two, knowing that he is the Lord, our God. Knowing God is a deeply personal thing. It's not about just knowing that the Lord is God. The personal pronoun is important. It's about knowing that the Lord is your God. Your God. The personal pronoun matters. And knowing that he's the only God. Israel was surrounded by powerful nations. And I guess a natural assumption at the time would be that, well, they're powerful nations. They must have pretty powerful gods. And I guess that expectation, that assumption would be uh, increased by the fact that Israel was going through a time of weakness. But by restoring them, by restoring their land, God was showing them that this was far from true. The Lord is the only God and there is no other. Last week, we finished with the nations asking, where is their God? Where is their God? And now we've got a definitive answer. The Lord is in Israel among his people. And with this complete reversal of fortune, that is proved. Their shame has been removed. And everyone, every nation, every powerful force against them will see that the Lord is with his people. I think it's easy to see what this meant for Israel, what this meant for God's people in the past, this imminent promise of renewal, restoration, reversal. I think it's less clear how it relates to us. But I think I want to suggest two applications for us to take away. One is about shame, and the other is about the world. Shame. When natural disasters hit, people often ask the question, where is your God? And honestly, it's very hard to answer that question in the moment. It's very hard. If you're in the staff room on a particularly bad news day, someone might ask you that very question. And unless you're very well practiced, there's a, there's a, a feeling that just washes over you of embarrassment and shame because you sort of know that whatever you say today isn't going to sound that convincing. But know that that feeling of shame won't last. A day is coming when sin is revealed and all will understand the brokenness of this world. A day is coming when the sovereignty of God will be on full display and no one will be able to question, where is your God? A day is coming when the fortunes of this world will be reversed and in that day, our shame will be removed as everyone sees, where is the Lord your God? He's with his people. And he has been all along. So if someone asks you that question on the bad news day, where is your God? If you feel that rising sense of embarrassment and shame, just respond like this. I don't know. But the Bible says that one day, both of us will know we'll see that he is the Lord my God and there is no other. 
Second application, the world. If you feel a sense of despair over creation, that is understandable. There are certainly a lot of people out there that want us to believe that this planet is doomed. But when we view this chapter in the whole sweeping story of the Bible, we can see that the climate doomsday doomsday preachers are completely wrong on this. They're right about our responsibility for creation, but they are wrong that our planet is doomed. Um, The way God restored his land after the locust swarm is a small picture of what he will do for the whole of his creation, everything he has made. Yes, he loves people. People are the highlight of his creation. He's interested in you. He's interested in your individual salvation as you come to him for forgiveness and put your faith in Christ. But his pity and jealous love also extends to the whole of creation. And the good news of Jesus extends even further than saving souls too. The gospel is good news for you. The gospel is good news for the whole planet. If you like, um, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. Or you can just listen to me as I read it, if you like. It's on page 1182. Page 1182, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And I'd like you to count how many times it says all things. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." How many all things? Maybe seven. Yeah, it depends how you count it. I I think there's literally five all things, but there's also a few alls. There's also everything as well. Um, It depends what version you have. A lot of all things. Through Jesus, all things were created. In Jesus, all things are held together. Through Jesus, all things are reconciled to God. The cross of Jesus is the place where God makes peace with you. The cross of Jesus is the place where God makes peace with the whole creation. And this world may go through a time of mourning before then, groaning, yet it is far from doomed. Rejoicing is just around the corner. Um, I've lost my place in Joel. Uh, turning back to it. Joel chapter 2, verse 20. Bearing that in mind, zooming out from God's plan for his land to his plan for the whole creation, surely he has done great things. 
Do not be afraid, land of Judah. We might say, do not be afraid, planet Earth. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. This passage is about removing shame. This passage is about restoring the world. Um, Have you gone in this broken world, gone through years that the locusts have ravaged, years that the locusts have eaten? Are you suffering with the the curse of this world, whether that's illness, whether that's frustrations of other kinds in a broken world? They are coming to an end. The Lord is restoring all things, and the cross is how he did it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that when we turn to you, you inevitably turn to us in grace, in compassion, in steadfast love. Thank you that you relent from sending calamity. Thank you that you have pity, jealous love for people like us, but also for this whole world. Father, thank you that. You give us so many good things in this creation that we can enjoy, that we can be glad and rejoice about. Thank you even more that we are looking forward to a day where this whole world is made new, where we can rejoice in a universal salvation in the right sense. Thank you that it will be free from disaster, free from calamity, free from disease. We praise you and look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. The musicians are coming to the front, and we're going to sing our final uh, song before communion, I Cast My Mind to Calvary.